Our passage this morning is found in Romans chapter 12, verses 6, 7, and 8. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Father, again, we thank you that as, as you have brought us into the body of Christ, that you have made us a critical player in the body of Christ. Father, help us to understand how important each one of us is to each other. Father, I pray that you would give us insight into our own giftedness and how we need to be a blessing to others. Lord, again, we thank you that you have made us as part of a body, not islands to ourselves. Again, we thank you for salvation. We thank you for sanctification. We thank you that you are patient as we are being sanctified, being set apart and that you are showing us how we can be useful. Forgive us for those times that we do not use our giftedness for others, when we become selfish and we just want to serve ourselves. Uh, Lord, again, we thank you that uh, you have rescued us from damnation. And now, as we are indebted to you, help us to understand that we are indebted indeed to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. You'll see on the outline, the title is Every Member a Minister. I would encourage you to circle the word every. Because that is the critical word there, every. The point is this, is that if you have been saved, if you came to an understanding and have come to an understanding of your own sinfulness, that God is, was condemning you for your sin and you understand that it was through Jesus Christ on the cross that you can be forgiven, that you have been forgiven and you've received Him and He has forgiven you, He has made you a child of His, he has brought you into the body of Christ. If, if you've truly received Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you're part of the every. Every member, a minister. Each one of us, whether you're 65 years old or 85 years old or 25 years old or 5 years old, if you have been placed into the body of Christ, if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, if truly you have received Him and believed on His sacrifice for you, you are a believer and therefore, this message applies to you. Now again, we live in America. And Americans think differently. We think very independent, don't we? We're an independent nation. We push individualism and independence. That we do it our, on our own terms. I think we'll find in the next 15 years, we're going to have to rethink that thought. Because as a nation, we're crumbling. We're going to have to depend on others. But we have been a very independent group. That's not, like it, that's not necessarily true around the world. In fact, many cultures, dependence is pushed. In fact, it's interesting that many times American mothers will preserve their children's first shoes in bronze 
And perhaps this represents the idea of freedom and independence. Like these, look at where he was and now where he is now. By the way, any of you ever bronze your kids' shoes? What's interesting is Japanese mothers preserve a small part of the child's umbilical cord. That's what they keep. Because that is to represent dependence and loyalty. Remember where you came from. (laughs) Dependence and loyalty beautifully describes the interrelationship the Lord desires for the members of his body, the church. The Lord wants us to be interdependent, not independent of each other. So just like a mother in Japan will keep a piece of that cord, remember where you came from. Remember how you got here. (laughs) Remember all those diapers I changed. Remember the training you received and where you received it from. There should be a dependence and a loyalty to the family. There should be loyalty to the family. There should be loyalty to to your physical family. But let me say this, there should even be a greater loyalty to your spiritual family. And that's what he's getting at here in Romans 12. There should be a greater loyalty to your, your spiritual family, the church of Christ. The body that you've been brought into once you got saved. Both universal, that means every Christian around the world that's ever lived, but also a loyalty to the local church. Those who have in this area said, yes, I'm a believer and I want to connect. Now I want to review Romans 12 just very quickly because the last time I was in this passage was like four weeks ago. Since then we've had Shabu here, we've had Easter, we've, we've brought in members and did a whole message on membership, how we need to be interconnected. And also we did a message on uh, elders when we brought two elders in. What was it, last week? Boy, it feels so long ago. Time flies. But you know, the point is we need to be interdependent. We need to be loyal to each other as part of the body of Christ. And that's what he's getting here, chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. By the way, he says, therefore, he brings us back to chapters 1 through 11. Based on everything he's been talking about... (coughs) In chapters 1 through 11, especially 1 through uh, 8, is Paul doing a treatise, as it were, on uh, the Christian life and on how before salvation all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are condemned. It was a hopeless, helpless situation humanity found themselves in. They were slaves to sin. They were slaves to their own passions. And yet Jesus Christ came, died, and we can be justified because we have faith in him. So when he says the word therefore, he says, listen, look at all the mercies of God that has been placed on your life when you were brought into the family. And because of that, verse 1 is really our relationship to God. We should present our bodies, the bodies that we have on this earth, as a living, holy, and uh, living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. We live our lives as a living sacrifice to him. Why? Because of all he's done for us. We are indebted to God. Not indebted in the sense that I'm working my salvation off, but indebted in that he has given me full and complete salvation through Christ. We are complete in him. Because of that, it's not like I just end up saying, well, you know, I just want to live my life for myself and, you know, just enjoy because I'm going to heaven. But we are committed to him. We are a living sacrifice to him. Verse 2 is a transition, and this is our relationship to the world. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transferred by, transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed. Notice the sequence. Salvation always leads to transformation. 
Salvation always leads to transformation. You, you get someone that says they're saved and they're not being transformed, even in the smallest of ways, no fruit. Don't come to the conclusion, well, they're saved, but they're just not growing. I would say treat that person carefully as an unbeliever and say, you know, you say that you, you've made a profession, but where's the change? Because salvation always leads to transformation. And the transformation is through the renewing of your mind. But then he goes in verse 3 and gives us our relationship with the body. In other words, we've got our relationship with God, our relationship with the world, but now what's our relationship with the body? The body of believers, the true believers. And he says, you know, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. And he uses the word think four times in one verse. So it's all about thinking. It's how we think. Look at verse 3. Not to think himself more highly. By the way, that's hyperthinking. That's literally how the Greek says hyper pronoun. So, I mean, it's hyperthinking. In other words, thinking highly uh, as you ought to think, but to think soberly. Proud people make terrible servants. Right? Proud people. People who have high thinking. When I mean high thinking is proud thinking, arrogant thinking. Proud people make terrible servants to the body of Christ. Because a proud person, it's all about me. And God says, through Paul, don't have high thinking. And he leads us right into the giftedness, the body first and then giftedness. Again, because we're reviewing, look at, um, look at verse 4. For as we have many members in one body, many members, so the first thing is the body has many parts, but is one Unit, Because again, it's many members in one body. Many parts, one unit. We find in uh, Colossians and Ephesians <coughs> that the head of the body is Christ. But again, many members, one body. And, and he uses the body concept. Now that's very, very important. Um, I, I want to read, and this is an extended portion, but it really gives the, the point of this whole... Um, you know, how are we interconnected organically through the head, Jesus Christ? And let me read about as far as our, our bodies. Pinch yourself. Now, this is about this body, okay? But it, it has a lot of uh, applications to the spiritual body. It's taken from a book, uh, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. Have any of you ever read that? Fearfully and Wonderfully? It was an old book back in the 80s. But anyways, this is an excerpt and from Dr. Brand. And, he, and this talks about how we are unified, unity in the body. What moves cells to work together? What, what moves them to work together? What ushers in the higher uh, specialized functions of movement, sight, consciousness, through the coordination of hundreds of trillions of cells? What brings it all together? How, do we, how is it that my hand listens to my brain and it has to go, you know, how does it work? How are we unified as far as in the body? The secret to the membership lies locked away inside each cell's nucleus, chemically coiled in a strand of DNA. Once the egg and the sperm share their inheritance, the DNA chemical ladder splits down the center of every gene, much as the teeth of a zipper pull apart. DNA reforms itself each time the cell divides. Two, four, eight, sixteen, thirty-two cells, each with the identical DNA. This is just, this is so fascinating to me. Along the way, cells specialize, but each carries the entire instruction book of one hundred thousand genes. Each cell, 100,000 genes. DNA is estimated to contain instructions that if written out, would fill a 1,600-page books. 
DNA, a thousand six hundred page books. So let me see. I have a book here, and how many pages? I have about three hundred fifty. So this is about this is just four hundred pages. But our DNA contains a thousand, approximately a thousand of these books. The information in that DNA. And we just came through evolution. <clears throat> you know, when a, when an artist has a masterpiece. It's the epitome of uh, like throwing junk on it by saying, well, it, you know, it really wasn't painted by her. You know what I mean? This is the, this is a piece, we are a piece of artistry from God, right? So anyway, 100,000 or 1,600 page books. A nerve cell may operate according to instructions from volume four and a kidney cell from volume 25, but both carry the, com- the whole compendium. Every cell has the complete compendium, but just one cell takes information for, this is where my information comes from. It provides each cell, cell's sealed credential of membership in the body. Every cell possesses a genetic code so complete that the entire body could be reassembled from information in any one of the body cells. Just as complete identity uh, code of my body is found in each individual cell, so also the reality of God permeates every cell in Christ's body, linking us members with a true organic bond. I sense that bond when I meet strangers in India or Africa or California who share my loyalty to the same head. Instantly, we become brothers and sisters, fellow cells in Christ's body. I share the ecstasy of community in a a universal body that includes every man and woman in whom God resides. Isn't that great? That's what he's getting at here when he says that we are many members, one body. One body, one head. But notice, let's go on here. It says the body has many parts and each each is important and different. So we have many members, one unit, but then each of the pieces are different. Again, Romans, all the members do not have the same function. We don't all have the same function. Like if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just in quick review, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body. Wait a second, we're all different. Can't get like envious, can't get jealous. Can't start griping and complaining because we're not made like... Verse 16, if the ear should say, because I'm not of the eye, I'm not of the body, is it, is it therefore not of the body? We're, we're parts, but there's the whole. Well, what if the whole body were an eye? How useful would that be? None. We've got to have difference. There's got to be different functions. So therefore, the point is, is this. Verse 18, Now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, as He pleased. None of us should, have, none of us should underestimate or overestimate our worth. Don't overestimate. Don't think more highly than you ought. But then again, don't underestimate either. You're a critical piece of the, of the, of the body. Critical member. I'm going to read one more extended passage of that book, because I I just find this so fascinating. Dr. Brand, again, writes about diversity. This time, diversity, you see, with the DNA, he's talking about unity. Every cell has the genetic code, but here it's diversity. He says, I'm struck by the variety in the body. Chemically, my cells are almost alike, but visually and functionally, they are different as the animals in a zoo. And he names some of the cells. Like the red blood cells, discs resembling lifesaver candies, voyage through my blood loaded with oxygen to feed the other cells. But how are they different than the muscle? 
The muscle cells, which absorb so much of the nutrition, are sleek and supple, full of coiled energy. Well, let's look at a third one. The cartilage cells with shiny black nuclei look like bunches of black-eyed peas glued tightly together for strength. How about the fat cells? They seem lazy and sluggish like bulging white plastic garbage bags jammed together. <laughs> hope you don't have any of those. But how about bone cells? Bone cells live in rigid structures that exude strength. Cut in cross-section, bones resemble tree rings overlapping strength with strength, offering impliable sturdiness. Then you have the skin cells. They form undiluting uh, patterns of softness and texture that rise and dip, giving shape and beauty to our bodies. They curve and jut in unpredictable angles so that every person's fingerprint, not to mention his or her face, is unique. See, that's how unique, that's how different the body is. And then he says this, the king of cells, the one I had devoted much of my life to studying, is the nerve cell. It has an aura of wisdom and complexity about it. Spider-like, it branches out and unites the body with a computer network of dazzling sophistication. Its wires or axons carrying distant messages to and from the human brain and can reach a yard in length. Just one cell. I never tire of viewing these varied specimens of thumbing through books which render cells. Individually, they may seem puny, oddly designed. By the way, do you ever feel like that? Remember, cells, we're part of the body. But I know that, that these invisible parts cooperate to lavish me with phenomenon of life. My body employs a bewildering zoo of cells, none of which individually resembles a larger body. None of, you can't take one and say that, that encompasses the entire body. Just so, Christ's body comprises an unlikely assortment of humans. <laughs> Boy, isn't that true? An unlikely assortment of humans. Unlikely is precisely the right word, for we are decidedly unlike one another and the one we follow. From those from whose design come these, chemi- or these comical human shapes, which so faintly reflects the ideals of the body as a whole. The body of Christ, like our own bodies, is composed of individual, unlike cells, that are knit together to form one body. So when Paul talks about the body, there's unity and there is diversity. Third, the body has many parts and are interdependent. And he goes on in Corinthians, you know, the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. The foot can't say to the eye, I have no need of you. No one can say to the other, I have no need of you. We are made so we are interdependent. That's why jealousy and pride is out in the body. That's why he keeps saying in 1 Corinthians like this, that we should have no chism in the body, but that every member should have the same care for one another. Why? Because God composed the body. He keeps going back to that in Corinthians. God composed it. God, it's according to his pleasure. Why? Because he wants to make it very clear, both in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, that it's God who designed the body, the spiritual body. And then finally, number four in your outline, the body has many parts and none are exclusive. Like, i.e., no one can say, is everyone an apostle? What does he say? No. Is everyone a prophet? No. Does everyone speak with tongues? No. In other words, there's no one that has all the different gifts that are needed. We, we are made so that we are interdependent. That's the design of it. The idea is this. I need you and you need me. Now, you might say, well, that's obvious. Well, no, no, a lot of times. A lot of times people might try to put, uh, just use me as an example. Well, no, you're a pastor. I mean, I need you maybe for teaching, but you don't need it. Oh, no, no. We need each other. We are interdependent. 
just like a body is. Well, let me give you some general thoughts because I've taken a little bit more time because it was four weeks ago that we looked at this. But, but notice, he goes from we are indebted to Christ, the mercies of God, therefore be a living sacrifice, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind because, it, because that's how we relate to the world. Transformation, we have to not be like the world. To then he says, now let me show you the body, how you're different and yet uh, unique, unique but, but unified. Now he actually brings us one step closer to that in verse 6 and says, let me actually show you, let me like take out a telescope as it were and show you why you are so unique. And now he gets into spiritual gifts. Up to this point, he hasn't talked about spiritual gifts. He's just saying, you know, the body, like a human body. You know, it's, it's different, but it's, it's all part of one. But now he says, let me show you why that is true. And we get into verse 6. Then having gifts. Then having gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. We have gifts differing according to the grace that's from God that's been given to us. Given. And I wrote down a a sentence, and I want you to really focus on this. Because there's four parts to the sentence I want to break apart very quickly. The sentence is this. Every believer has a spiritual gift from God, which is unique to them for the common good. Now, that is a very, very critical statement. Every believer has a spiritual gift. If you're a believer, you have a spiritual gift. That gift didn't come from yourself. It's from God. And it is unique. This gift is unique. Sola is unique. Her giftedness is unique compared to Janice, compared to Donna, compared to Brent, compared to Philip. All unique, but this is the point for the common good. Every believer, let's take it right here. Every believer, well, it's like chapter or verse 6. It says, given to us. I'm just breaking down that first part of verse 6. It's been grace that's been given to us. <coughs> the idea is to each of us. Corinthians 12 says this, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. The manifestation of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, has been given to each one. Each one of us have a spiritual gift. You want to write this verse down, verse 11. Well, no, excuse me. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all, for the benefit of all. So each one of us has been given a spiritual gift. And you may just say, well, what do you mean by spiritual gift? You know, let's, and I didn't put this as a definition there, but it basically is this. It's an ability or a power from God from the Holy Spirit, to function effectively and significantly in a particular service as a member of Christ's body, the church. And that's not, that definition there is not original with me. The first one is, but not that. Um, so it's a spiritual gift. It's a power. It's a power for me. It's a power for you to be significant, to have effect on other believers' lives. That's what we mean by spiritual gift. What it does is, I mean, it's so beautiful. I love this concept. When God saves you and places you in the body, he doesn't just place you like a, like a cell that's out here that, well, you just, have to, you just have to grow. You have to suck in the nutrients. You have to, like, feed off of the body, but you're of you no know, use. You're just there. You know, give yourself 20 years, then maybe you'll become useful. No, God saves you, and he gives you a gift so that you become a critical play, a player in that body. Okay? You're needed. At the moment of salvation, you're needed. 
Now, hopefully, as you grow in Christ, you'll become more effective. But the idea is this is how the Spirit of God makes you effective. But haven't you ever heard, have you ever heard of a, I, I have found this sometimes, a person gets saved. I mean, they've only been saved for like like a month or two months. And they just say maybe their testimony. Just And it's like, doesn't that like just totally bless you? Whoa, that's God ministering through that person to the body. Or that person just wants to share something. And they've only been saved a short time. It can be a tremendous to the, uh, blessing to the body. So it's every believer, whether you're 5 or 85. Now, again, this is a spiritual gift. Distinguish that from a natural gift. This is given by God. Let's go on. Let me, I'm just going to break down this sentence. Every believer has a spiritual gift from God. The word gifts according to the grace. Both of those words come from the, the, the um, well, the word grace. That word gifts is actually from the word grace. So really what he's talking about here is grace gifts. Okay, so Romans 6, when it says having them gifts, that's grace, according to the grace, that's obviously grace, these are grace gifts. Now, what's grace? Grace is something that you do not deserve that God has given to you as a gift, right? When you receive Jesus Christ, for by grace are you saved through faith and what? Not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We come to... We come to God through Jesus Christ. He, we receive Jesus Christ as a gift, a free gift. But not only do you receive forgiveness at the moment of salvation, you also receive a grace gift. Because this is what unites us to each other, makes us useful to each other, interdependent. So this is, it's interesting that this is grace gifts. Over in um, 1 Corinthians, he talks about uh, spiritual gifts, many times the word gift doesn't even appear. That's just uh, italicized because that's what he's talking about. But there the word is pneumatotos. The idea is uh, from the Spirit. Okay, so whereas here he's emphasizing it's grace. That's how he got the gift. In Corinthians 12, he's actually emphasizing and it's the Spirit that gives it and empowers it. You see the difference? There it's the Spirit that gives it. That's why he uses pneumatos, pneuma, holy, I mean Spirit, Spirit. Pneumatos. And here, he said, but listen, let me tell you, it's, it's because God has been gracious to you. That's why you have your gift. So, it's every believer has a spiritual gift, again, from God. It's a grace gift. The gift is given so that we might, by the way, not so that we would promote ourselves. That would go against verse 3. Don't think too highly of yourself. It's so that we can honor Christ, Glorify the Father, glorify God, and become interdependent on each other. That's why the gift was given. The idea is this. The gift makes us not only to belong to Christ, but because we have a gift and we each need it, we belong to one another. Or to say it a different way, we have, as one man said, property in one another. I like that. I have property in you. In other words, I have a, uh, I have a, 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 I'm a, maybe use the word stakeholder. I mean, I, 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 I have a, I want to make sure you keep progressing because your gift is also going to be used for my life. So we are inter, that's, it's just like this. You don't take a hammer and bang your finger and say, oh, bummer, you know, let's cut that thing off. No, you nurse it. I need it. This is important. This is critical. This is part of me. And yet sometimes in the body of Christ, the person gets smashed, and it's almost like we just say, ah, let's cut him off. 
By the way, it's not just local. Church, this is universal. Kelly Perkins had, an, you know, her husband died. Well, she goes to a different church. Let's not worry about her. No. Part of the body of Christ, right? When one member hurts, we all hurt. So this goes beyond our local church, but it should definitely be prevalent in our local church. And like a one man said, as a believer, we have a right to the gifts that you have, that you've been given. And you have a right to our gifts. You cheat us if you do not use them, and you are poorer if you do not depend on ours. Okay? You cheat us if you don't use yours, and you're poorer for yourself, spiritual life, if you don't depend on what the Lord has given. And since the Lord has given it, and he gave it to us at the moment of salvation when we did not deserve it, we may neglect our gift, we may reject our gift, but you cannot lose your gift. See, you can become a, an unworthy servant in the sense of a steward who doesn't use what God has given you, but you can't lose it. That's important because you may say, well, I haven't really been faithful. Get faithful. Because <laughs> God's holding you accountable. Let's move on. Every believer has a spiritual gift from God which is unique to them. Unique. That means we're all different. This is where sometimes it's hard. See, we really like um, the uh, herd mentality. When we're doing something, everybody should have passion for that, right? Like if we're going to move in this direction, you know, like if I get excited about Olympian program, you should get excited. You know, what are you just you know, sitting on your hands for? Come on, let's get going. It's hard to really say, you know, we're a diverse group. We have different passions, all moving us because of our spiritual giftedness and our, even our uh, heritage and stuff like that. We don't really like diversity in one sense. Well, yes, we're individuals, but then when they don't, we, people don't all get on the same boat, it's like, well, what's wrong with you? But here, we're all gifted differently. In fact, Peter says it this way, 4.10, as each one has received a gift. Now, that's very important because he doesn't say it in the plural. He says, gift, minister it according uh, to one another as a good steward. He says, you get the gift, minister it according, uh, accordingly to one another. But again, it's a gift. So I've always been told, well, you have gifts. No, no, it says that you have a gift. You might say, well, how does that work? Again, I believe each of us have a unique gift. And I'm going to give an illustration of that actually next week. But just like a snowflake, and by the way, did you hear we might get like three to five inches? Yes! One last time. One la- no, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. um, by the way, if I call you snowflake when you leave, you know, you'll know what I'm talking about. Yeah, we're all like snowflakes. But anyways, no two Christians are identical. No two Christians are identical. It, it seems like what, what, what he's saying here is that God... By the way, we're going to look at different gifts in just a moment, but apparently what happens is God takes those gifts like ingredients, like those are representative of the areas of service, and then he mixes them according to how he wants to, to produce you. I mean, the gift that he gave. So, you know, just like you take, take ingredients for baking a cake or baking muffins or baking... Uh, uh, waffles or baking pancakes or uh, frying pancakes or whatever. Very similar ingredients. You know, you have water and, and flour and sugar and, you know, baking powder and baking soda. And don't mix those up, by the way, baking powder and soda. 
Um, but you put all this, and depending on the amounts, you get either a pancake or a cupcake or a cake or a, you know, a waffle or however you want to, you know, these ingredients. And it seems like what happened is that God is taking different pieces and, and, and puts it all together and, and this is you, okay? And now, now he grabs some others and now this is a little bit more teaching and a little bit more exhortation, a little less mercy, and now this is you. And uh, we all learn from each other. By the way, when it comes to the gifts, we're all supposed to do the gifts that are found in Romans 6, or 12. We're all supposed to exhort. We're all supposed to teach. If you're a parent, you teach. If you're, you know, um, we are all to show mercy. We are all to give. But apparently some have the gift, have, have a greater ability. Finally, every believer has a spiritual gift from God which is unique to them for the common good. I'm hurrying through a little bit of this. We will come back to it next week one final time. But for the common good, that is so critical. Again, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. I've been given my gift for your, for your benefit. I have not been given my gift for mine. So if a person comes along and says, I have a spiritual gift, and it's my own personal prayer language, I say, you just violated Corinthians 12, 7. Because it wasn't given for you, it was given for us. It doesn't fit the bill of what a spiritual gift is. I was given the gift of giving so that I could have a lot of money and I just want to spend it on myself. That's not what the gift is for. It's for the body of Christ. I just like teaching and and God gave me the gift because it edifies me. Wrong. It's for you, right? For the common good. So we have to be careful. Again, gifts from God, unique, common good. Very, very important summary statement, if you will. Now, let's get in. And by the way, you can see all this in in verse 6. Having them gifts, differing according to the grace, again, given by God, is given to us all. So, I mean, you find that right in verse 6. Well, let's look at the specific gifts, though. The specific ones. And and I know we're almost out of time, so we're only going to hit a few of these. So your outline lied. We're not going to go through all seven. But let's look at a few of them. First of all, there's prophecy. Then there's ministry, which is service. Then there is teaching. Then there's exhortation. And Now, you know what's interesting is this. There are five passages in Scripture, five, that specifically speak of spiritual gifts. Uh, you have Ephesians 4, 11. Uh, God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And then he talks about for the edifying of the body of Christ so that we might all work together. But there is Ephesians. And he only names four of them, really. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. If you go to 1 Peter 4, he talks about the like big topic of, uh, of spiritual gifts. And he talks about those who are servers and those who are teachers. So their spiritual gifts, he just says, listen, you've, been re- you've received a gift. And it either falls in one of two categories. Either it's a speaking gift or a, uh, a serving gift. And what's interesting, he actually uses the same word as the word, uh, verse 7, ministry. That's real interesting because, again, it again goes back to the idea that these gifts are not supposed to be like, uh, uh, these are like the ingredients that make the gift. Now, some may have a strong gift in 
uh, prophecy and teaching, but again, it's mixed with the edif- or, um, exhortation and helps and some other things. So there's five. Now, Romans, that's seven gifts that are uh, thrown out there. And then 1 Corinthians 12, there's two parts of 1 Corinthians 12 that, that talk about gifts. But this is interesting. None of, the, none of the, the lists are the same. And some of the lists kind of overlap each other. Like when you look at ministry, diakonai uh, is the same idea as helps found in 1 Corinthians 12. There's the gift of administration, 1 Corinthians 12, that looks very similar to verse 8, he who leads. So it's almost like, okay, you have a leading gift and, and Paul calls it two different names. You have a helping gift and Paul calls it two different words. When you come to the things, you don't have any consistency. I think that's the point. It's not about you finding like, do I have the gift of teaching or do I have the gift of leading? I'm just not sure. And until I really find out, I just don't think I better move off the dime. <laughs> you know what he says? Well, if you have prophesied, prophesy. If you, if you have it in your heart to, to say, thus saith the Lord, do it. Because it's more foretelling. And then look at verse 7. Ministry, use it. <laughs> do it. Just a few years ago, like, just do it. Don't like sit around. And he, and he kind of goes through the whole way. You know, like, uh, he who is teaching and teaching. Teach. If you have exhortation and exhortation. If you do it, if you give, do it with liberality because there might be a possibility that you might have the gift of giving, but you feel like, well, man, I'm already giving 30%. Why would I give more? I mean, they're only giving like 8 or 10%. No, do it with liberality. You know, liberality is, <laughs> I just want to, you know, you know, you laugh as you do it. He who leads with diligence. Why? Because the leader has a tendency not to be diligent. You know, you get frustrated with people and they're irritating. And why do I want to lead that bunch of rabble sheep? No, do it with diligence. Or he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Oh, I got to go to the hospital again. You know, why can't the person either get well or die? <laughs> no, do it with cheerfulness. No, no, see, sometimes, see, I think that the second part of each statement is the tendency of what we don't do with our gift. Okay, let's take them, take a couple at least. How about prophecy? Actually, let's go down just to teach. We'll just do three today, okay? To teach, well, first of all, prophecy. With the, uh, let us prophesy in the proportion to our faith. Now, prophecy has come under bad raps of recent. Because the word literally means to foretell, speak out. That's the, really the root, speaking forth. But again, we have a tendency, always think of prophecy in like foretelling the future. And yet, as you go through scripture, many of the times when they said they prophesied, they were just speaking th- truths that were already known. So the idea is that they were speaking truth. Now, sometimes that speaking truth in the New Testament also included uh, foretelling. But the guts of the thing, it didn't have to do with foretelling. It had to do with forthtelling, okay? Speaking God's word, speaking for God, as it were. Or literally, the, uh, the Greek word has the idea of one who stood in front of another person to speak with that person wanted spoken. You see a good illustration of that if you go to uh, Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. It says, uh, verse 10. Now, think of this. A person who speaks in front of a person that has a message. 
It's like a herald, which Paul talks about in other passages. This is Moses and Aaron. And Moses, again, is unwilling to speak. In verse 10, then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent. He later says, I am slow of speech. I am slow of tongue. After God rebuked him in anger, I mean, after he rebuked him and was angry with Moses, because that's very evident in the passage, get to verse 15. Now you, Moses, shall speak to him, that's Aaron, and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. I'm going to be with both of your mouths. And I will teach you what you shall do. Verse 16. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you. Now go to chapter 7, verse 1. And I hope that your version has the same word as mine. Tell me if you did, doesn't. Then I'll kick you out of here. No, uh, it says verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your, what is it word? What is the word? Prophet. What do you mean? Well, how, first of all, how you got, well, be, God to Pharaoh, what do you mean? Because you are representing me, Moses. Okay? And he actually repeats that thought. And your brother's representing you. And the words I've given to you are going to be given to him, and he's going to speak. He is preaching. He is proclaiming truth. Now, again, it may be truth that wasn't known before that point. But the, the, but the emphasis of the word is that you are telling truth. You're speaking truth. That's why in Corinthians 14... Again, understanding that the the proclaimer is under the influence of the Holy Spirit to communicate. I mean, that's an obvious, that we are led by the Spirit of God as we use this gift. That's already been said. 1 Corinthians 14.3 says, But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. That's a great definition of prophecy right there. 1 Corinthians 14.3 When you proclaim truth, you edify, you exhort, and you comfort. And Paul goes back and forth, you know, should you, is it more important to tongues or prophecy? And he keeps saying, well, it's more important to, for prophecy. Have the gift of prophecy because then you can exhort and comfort and encourage. And he ends with a little addendum. Now, the addendum is this. Uh, if prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Actually, it's interesting. The word our faith is literally, there's a, there's a uh, definite article of the faith. That's very, very critical. Most translations do not even bring that out. The faith. So there's like this objective, objective uh, boundary, limitation. As you are proclaiming truth, make sure it is, it is about the faith, the gospel. In other words, you can't go beyond the bounds of what is scripture. Now you might say, but well... Yeah, but then it's directly led by God himself. And it can't contradict Scripture. Remember, one of the major principles of hermeneutics, compare Scripture with Scripture. And I think that's what he's getting at. I'm very very, uh, confident that he is getting at that, that, that you never go beyond the scope of Scripture. Compare Scripture with Scripture, and you're proclaiming truth. Now, if you go beyond Scripture, especially the Gospel, remember what Galatians 1 says? Remember what Paul said? He said, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what you have preached, than what we have preached to you, let him be damned. 
and be accursed. Let the judgment of God, let the wrath of God fall on him. Okay, our faith, the faith. Make sure that you do it in proportion to the faith. In other words, make sure you stay within the parameters of what is Scripture. <coughs> because think about <coughs> those who proclaim truth. They can get off the path very quickly. How about number two? Serving or ministry. <coughs> Excuse me, the, your Bible may have ministry or serving. Ministry, let him use it in our ministry. The, the word ministry here is diakonai. It's where we get our word deacon. Different form, but the root of actually this word is the word deacon or deaconess. Okay? By the way, what is a deacon or deaconess? What? They come along to do what in the body of Christ? They come along to serve. By the way, what is an elder? What is their main thing? We saw it last week. They are come along to shepherd and oversee. The words themselves have tremendous meaning as to the direction. Who are the leaders in this church as far as overseeing? It's elders. What are the deacons then? Why are they here? Well, because they come along and help serve so that we can be as effective as we need to be. Let me point out quickly, I don't believe the serving has to do with the official office of deacon. Because it also says of Jesus Christ himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, that's a form of that word, but to serve, so not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I think this, this word here has to do with the word helps. I think there's a real good correlation. Serving. And part of your gift in this, many of you have the gift of serving. There's a major, for some of you, it's a major part of the ingredient. In fact, in your mind, you think this way. Listen, anytime anybody needs help in this church, whether it's moving or whether it's something they need in their own personal lives, I can't understand why everybody doesn't jump on the bandwagon. Probably because you are so gifted in that area, that's all that it colors. Like, why can't everybody, like, you know, help out? Well, remember, everyone has a different function. That's where division can happen in the body. Well, man, I showed up and like four other people, and it seems like we're always showing up for people when they, you know, when they're moving or something else, they're always showing up. Why can't the rest of you show up? And before long, you get a little bitter, a little bit angry, a little bit of you know, contention, a little bit of rivalry, a little bit of jealousy. Well, let's think about this, though. Maybe that's because God has so bent you with your spiritual gift. But now, what does he say? Or ministry, or serving, let us use it to serve. <laughs> get on with it. Let's get going. Don't get angry. Don't like look around. Why doesn't he do what he's supposed to you know? No, if God's given you that... Count it as a privilege of being part of the body of Christ. Don't get jealous and don't get critical. Okay? Sometimes I can get critical. But just do it. How about third one? Teaching. He who teaches and teaching. Same type of scenario. If you're going to teach, teach. The word is didasco. Um Teaching is different than prophecy, not so much in content, but in the way that is presented. Like a teacher is more systematic. Precept upon precept, more exegetical. person with prophecy can just speak, but they might be over here and there. But you had teaching, and now it's systematized. You see this in Sunday school teachers, college professors at you know Christian colleges, seminary. You definitely see it in pastor teachers. But again, there's a difference in the way because teaching is the critical thing. We've got to get truth to people. It's, 
It is said of Jesus Christ, the master teacher, and in Luke 24, there's a real good illustration because the same forms of this verb is used in Luke 24. Remember as he teaches the disciples? And it says on, in verse 27, Luke 24, 27. Um, let's see here. It says, and beginning at Moses... These are the, the disciples on Emmaus wrote. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded, that, that's a form of that word teaching, didasco, to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And if you go over to verse, I think it's 32. And they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while, while he talked with us on the road and while he, he opened the scriptures to us? Again, a, a, a different form, same word, didasco. He opened the scriptures. What was he doing? He was going from Moses and showing, look, that's where I'm found. Do you see the, the thread of, of redemption here? Do you see that how I was, I was foretold that I would be coming? And he did it in a very systematic way. That same word is found in uh, Great Commission, teaching them to observe all things. It says the early church continued in the apostles' doctrine. Same, different form, same word. So you find it all over the place. Timothy is told this, and the things that you have been that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you have prophecy, you have serving, you have teaching, you have exhortation. And what does he say? In teaching, just do it. By the way, is teaching easy? Teaching is very difficult if you continue to teach and continue to learn. Now, if, if I just gave up after five years and reproduced my same messages for the second, sixth, or tenth year, and a second, a third time on my eleventh to fifteenth year, that's a different story. If you're teaching the same thing over and over again, that's one thing. But if, you, if you're a teacher and you're seeking to get delve into the book and precept upon precept, it's, it's very difficult. It's like one preacher said, uh, preaching is 90% perspiration and 10% inspiration. Because the... Because the hardness of preaching is the fact that you have to keep learning yourself. It's not, it's not getting up. This is the fun part. That's why actually sometimes it's, uh, uh, it's a temptation to download a message. Oh, because that, that's 90% of the work. The work is the, the preparation, not on the presentation. So again, we want to make sure that we are teaching. And, and then the word exhortation. Let me summarize like this. You take those four. Now, I'm going to give you an exhortation. I want to give you a final statement because I think all these four work together. You could say it this way. Where prophecy proclaims the truth and serving authenticates the truth because you're serving and really authenticates the truth and teaching systematizes the truth, exhortation calls other believers to the truth to do it. That's how he puts those together. They all actually work around truth. Proclaiming, authenticating, systematizing, and then when you get to our exhortation next week, it's like, how does this work with each other? And if it's not working, we need exhorters. Come on, let's go along. Come on, let's get, let's get busy. Let's get busy about serving the Lord. So exhortation is believers coming beside other believers and exhorting them. Hey, we need you. We need you to be faithful to God. We started out the idea with cells. Cells. Many members, one body. Each, each body, each member is different though. You're like cells in your body. Now think about this. What does a healthy, do, a healthy cell do in your body? A healthy cell feeds itself and then produces good to the rest of the body. Right? 
Well, what does a benign cell do? A benign cell, from what I understand, it just feeds itself and it just gets fat. They're not as dangerous as a malignant cell, but they're just selfish. They just feed and they just, and they just have this bump. It's not useful to the body, it's just there. It's not lethal to the body, but it's just there. But then you have, when you go to the doctor and it says it's malignant, it can destroy. It can permeate and it can actually destroy the rest of the body. Benign really doesn't, but the malignant can. You have three types of cells. Healthy cells, that's what we're all exercising and eating towards. (laughs) But sometimes you have a benign and, well, yeah, I don't like it there, but it's not really... Sometimes we have... Sometimes those are found in the body of Christ. They just feed themselves. What is in it for me? Just give me, 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 me. You know, it's not really important about you, and if I go to the message and if you bless me, then I'll come back. It's kind of like a benign. But then sometimes malignant. They're rebellious. They teach against the truth. They teach against the leadership. They teach against the body. And they do it in a very subtle way. Sometimes you don't spot them for a while. But they spread their destruction around the body. And for a human body, it kills you. But for a spiritual body, it'll kill it too. Ask yourself, what are you? Are you a healthy cell? Well, are you serving the body? Are you a fat cell? I don't mean fat. I'm just saying benign. You just like zonk it up. You know, you have these pictures with the guy with a you know can of pop and it's like four chips, you know, bags of chips and just let me have the you know remote control, you know, not really doing anything. Or are you even malignant? You were hurt and and you just actually you're here but you just kind of spread and a lot of times it's your gossip and slander or whatever, but really or maybe it's just this, I'm not gonna serve and, and I have a bad attitude. Which type of cell are you? If you're if you're any of the latter two confess because God wants you to be a healthy self promoting the health of the body let's stand as we worship him father again we thank you for these reminders remind us often that we are indebted to you thank you for your salvation that it was free it was not deserved it was totally of grace Lord as we meditate on that truth also remind us that we are indebted to one another that you have given us something that needs to be used, that you will hold us accountable for it. Lord, help us to be about your business of serving one another. That's how we show our love for you. As the passage really in a common way would say, just do it. Help us to get busy. We know that even if we don't know specifically how you have gifted us, that it's easier to guide and direct a moving car than one that's in park. So, Lord, help us to be about your business of serving. And then through that, Lord, thank you that you will guide us by your Spirit to continue to show us exactly the areas that we are most effective in to the body of Christ. Lord, help us not to forget this message. Again, we are going to be held accountable. Lord, help us to put everything at your feet to be a true living sacrifice before your people. In Jesus' name. Amen.